0: This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practise. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. Health Ed's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022, and we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. It was probably two months ago that very few GPs had anything to do with Japanese encephalitis except to vaccinate a few travelers. Now it is likely Japanese encephalitis will become endemic and GPs will once again be at the cold face and forefront in diagnosis and future immunization programs and patient education. So we need to learn to live with another virus apart from SARS-CoV-2, this time thanks to climate change and feral pigs. Learn more about Japanese encephalitis in this podcast from Associate Professor Bernie Hudson.
1: Uh, Professor Hudson, tell us about yourself. Uh, I'm an infectious diseases specialist and a clinical microbiologist. I work at North Shore Hospital in Sydney, where I'm the head of that department but I'm also on the staff at James Cook University as an associate professor in the School of Public Health, and I'm a senior lecturer at Sydney University. Bernie, look, seriously, Japanese encephalitis, I honestly
0: cannot remember hearing about it, and I'm sure a lot of my GP colleagues would be, if you like, learning from the newspapers or whatever has been published. So, I'm really going to come to you for a Japanese encephalitis
1: 101, Bernie. So it's over to you. It's it's very interesting, David, because, you know, most general practitioners, the only thing they would know about Japanese encephalitis prior to this outbreak is people coming to travel overseas to Southeast Asia, where it's endemic, including Japan as well and the Indian subcontinent and Papua New Guinea, would think, oh my God, there's a vaccine for it. You know, uh, the vaccine's expensive. The number of cases that occur in travelers, your risk is like, you know, less than one in a million. Uh, Do you really need to be vaccinated? And so over the years, the only exposure we've had as doctors to the notion of Japanese encephalitis and where it fits in is really as a travel related illness, something that actually happens out there. But in reality, there have been cases of Japanese encephalitis in uh, the Torres Strait Islands uh, episodically from time to time and also uh, in the islands uh, off the north of uh, the Northern Territory as well, basically because they're a bridge between the places where it's endemic. Okay, so Japanese encephalitis is caused by a virus, which is a flavivirus, and the other flaviviruses that people would know extremely well is dengue. Zika virus, uh, yellow fever, uh, West Nile virus. And, and interestingly, um, most they're, they're spread by mosquitoes. Uh, they're, they're interesting in that they have a similar sort of pathology. They usually have an acute febrile illness. Some of them are more prone to causing encephalitis and meningitis than others. But whilst something like dengue usually has a fairly high clinical case attack rate where most people get infected, do get sick, uh, uh, Japanese encephalitis, West Nile uh, encephalitis, Murray Valley encephalitis, all these, the, the chance of actually getting sick once you get infected is extremely low, like extremely low, so that The the big problem really is is it can defy detection until a case of meningitis or encephalitis more likely turns up for which all the diagnostic tests are negative. And so if we live in an area where we don't think it occurs, we're not really usually thinking about it. But what happens by stealth is these viruses come in through migratory birds. They get into the mosquito populations that feed off the viruses. And then if you've got another reservoir that has viremia gets infected and has a persistent viremia, uh, then that's when you run into problems. And that amplifying host with the viremia is actually pigs. And in Southeast Asia, uh, living in an environment where you've got pigs close to the house is regarded as a risk factor for getting Japanese encephalitis, because basically it's the humans, the pigs and the mosquitoes. So if you think about Japanese encephalitis, think about the flaviviruses, and we'll think about that a little bit more when we get to talk about vaccination. So if you do get symptoms, uh, then there might be an acute febrile illness. But if you get any neurological symptoms, unfortunately, the outcome is usually bad. You've got variably reported about, I use a rule of thirds, you've got about a 30% chance of dying and you've got about a 30% chance that if you survive that you're gonna have quite significant neurological disabilities, like many of the other encephalitises. And, you know, most GPs would have heard of Murray Valley encephalitis and that's a similar sort of thing that basically uh, happens uh, with that. We haven't had many cases for a long period of time and it's not usually on many people's radar Okay, so it's a flavivirus, it causes asymptomatic infection in most people, and uh, it rarely it causes illness, but when it does, it's uh, it's really got a poor prognosis. So how can we be aware that someone's actually got Japanese encephalitis? Well, the first thing to do is to be alert, and obviously you can see that there are piggeries throughout South Australia, New South Wales, Victoria, and Queensland, they've got established infection in the pigs so it's obviously been around here for quite some time and it's probably more likely than not related to La Nina and all the rain that we've had a lot of mosquitoes if you look at whether it could be related to people coming into the country that have got virus in their blood that's pretty unlikely because the amplifying hosts are the ones where the virus can stay in the bloodstream for a long enough period of time that mosquitoes can bite those uh, hosts, primarily pigs, and then the mosquitoes get infected and spread it to to humans. Horses and donkeys, for example, get infected. But in general, humans, horses and donkeys are not viremic for long enough to be regarded as a significant part of the epidemiology. They're what we generally call dead-end hosts. So the the main focus is going to be on mosquito control and the main focus is going to be on um, surveillance in pigs in particular. Interestingly, we do have a program in uh, in Australia where we have sentinel chickens that are used for surveillance for arbovirus infections. And a number of them are positioned you know, in places where there's a lot of uh, mosquito activity and where cases of, say, Murray Valley encephalitis have occurred before. And even though some of them are actually assessed for influenza, we probably do have very useful uh, historical data on those, which can go back and be uh, checked as far as the samples um, so that, you know, you get places like out in Menindee where there's a lot of water. Um, There's a surveillance program out in places like that. And of course, these Migratory birds, primarily herons and egrets, you know, those pretty sort of, you know, long-necked white birds that are wading birds that come from the northern hemisphere or from endemic countries, say like Indonesia, uh, Papua New Guinea. They're the ones that actually bring the virus into the country primarily. Mm -hmm. Could an individual have brought it into the country and then the outbreak started? Uh, look, that's possible, but pretty unlikely based on the epidemiology. So it's primarily got to do with migratory birds. Mm-hmm. I think the wild card for us in Australia is the wild pig population. We've got a large number of wild pigs and, and anything to try and implement controls in the wild pigs is going to be extremely difficult. Fortunately, the government agencies have had programs for controlling uh, feral pigs. And there's there's some that have been quite widely uh, Publicised on shows on the ABC, like Landline, for example. So I think it's not not that we don't have a handle on what's going on with them, but it's going to be whenever you've got a wild animal reservoir, mm-hmm. uh, you, you you're always going to have tro- con- trouble uh, controlling the disease. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that more likely than not, the disease is going to become endemic. But you know, you have endemicity where you might get very few cases, and then you have spikes every now and then, much like what we used to have with Murray Valley encephalitis, basically. So it's the seasonal variation with a lot of rain, for example, that occurs. And following the rain, you get mosquito population, then you get the pigs infected, and then you tend to get the human cases. So the human cases tend to occur after those things have happened. So late summer and autumn would be the times to be uh, more vigilant. Now the mosquitoes that transmit, Japanese encephalitis, in Aust- they're, they're what we call culicine mosquitoes. In Australia, probably the main vector is one called Culex anuli rostris. And Culex anuli is also a major a major vector for Ross River virus infection. Mm-hmm. And even though that's an alpha virus and not a flavivirus, you can see the general mosquito control is good at controlling uh, mosquito-borne diseases in general. Okay, so say, say you actually get a patient who you think would have uh, Japanese encephalitis, how do you make the diagnosis? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is, is if a patient presents with a meningitis or encephalitis, make sure they've got something that's treatable that you don't miss. So make sure they don't have herpes simplex encephalitis, make sure they don't have varicella zoster virus encephalitis, make sure it's not the common one, which is enterovirus out of the viruses and and definitely make sure it's not a meningococcal meningitis that you miss or a pneumococcal meningitis. So the first thing to do is the patients actually need to be referred and uh, the diagnostic test is a lumbar puncture. Now the diagnosis of these flaviviruses uh, generally is the best test is an IgM test for antibodies to the specific flavivirus done on the cerebrospinal fluid. Mm -hmm. And even though you can do PCR on blood and PCR even on urine, where the virus is shed in urine for a longer period of time with the flaviviruses, the best test is actually antibody test on either blood or CSF. But generally, the CSF one is uh, the best test to do. So they need a lumbar puncture. But for goodness sake, make sure that the CSF is tested for all those other things, Mm -hmm. meningococcus, pneumococcus, uh, herpes simplex, uh, the big three, in particular, listeria is, is you know, one, one, one of the others. So, and enterovirus is probably the, the, the most common out of the viral encephalitides that we diagnose. So that's the, that's the diagnosis. The treatment is generally supportive. There's not really, uh, there's no proven treatment um, that uh, improves outcome. And so, unfortunately, once you've got it. Um, there's nothing much uh, that can be done apart from supportive care. Interestingly, what will happen is I think this will push uh, progress towards treatment of flavivirus encephalitis, and uh, there are some drugs out there to treat dengue, for example, that may end up being trialed in some of these patients with Japanese encephalitis. So that's, that's all very important, but the most likely question people are going to ask is, how do I, how do I avoid getting it? Okay. Japanese encephalitis, uh, in many parts of Southeast Asia, they've got childhood immunization programs. So it's part of the national immunization programs, so Jap- uh, is a Japanese encephalitis vaccination. And so it it is likely that at the moment the focus is going to be primarily on people that work in piggeries or people that are in rural areas. So GPs that are in rural uh, locations will need to uh, be up to pace. Uh, Their public health units generally and also to a degree the Department of Primary Industry uh, would be excellent resources to get information. And most of the states have actually Uh, the Eastern states have got pretty good stuff on their uh, websites already about Japanese encephalitis. What is it? And it gives a very uh, brief perspective on it. The first preventative thing is if if you've got domestic pigs, keep the domestic pigs away from the house Um, because the closer the pigs are to the house, the more likely the mosquitoes that bite them when they're viremic will actually uh, then have easy access to you as a human to bite. Now, and obviously they don't just bite them and suddenly transmit it. There will be a development cycle probably in the mosquito before they become, be able to cause infection. But at the end of the day, in Southeast Asia, for example, keeping pigs under the house and having mosquitoes, that's the ideal environment to, uh, for transmission to humans. Um, so, mosquito control, if you've got pigs, keeping the pigs away from domestic uh, quarters. And that includes, you know, a child that might have one or two pet pigs, for example. They shouldn't really be kept anywhere anywhere near the house. The insect repellents, basically, the main ones are the ones that have got deep uh, picaridin or ecaridin, as it's sometimes known, an extract of lemon eucalyptus. Now, the extract of lemon eucalyptus is a, is a confusing one because people will go out and buy citronella. But you really need to specifically look for the one that's got oil of lemon eucalyptus. I've had a bit to do with one of those products on the market here in Australia. But it's very important that you actually look to see which oil of lemon eucalyptus it is. I mean, the the, the citronella is very short-acting. And whilst it might be eucalyptus-based, those citronella derivatives do not work very well. And so, so protection against mosquito biting, control the mosquitoes around the house. So farmers and people that have got piggeries, you know, there are various. Any any loose water that's around uh, attracts mosquitoes to breed in, and so reducing breeding sites for mosquitoes is very important. And then the next thing we come to is vaccine. So there are two main vaccines on the market in Australia. Uh, One is called Jspec, J E S V C T. Overseas, that trade name is Ixiaro, I-X-I-A-R-O. There's one called Imojev, which is a single dose vaccine. Ixiaro Spec is a two dose vaccine schedule. Um, and there used to be an old one that was called JEVAX that was made in mouse brain, and a lot of people would have actually had that. Uh, and I've had that, you know, when I was travelling to, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, uh, a few decades ago. That was the only vaccine that was around. So if we concentrate on the JSpec or Xero and the ImoJev, which is the single dose one, the big difference between the two is one is a killed vaccine, and it has an adjuvant called alum alum in it. The other is a live vaccine. And, and it's interesting because Imojev, the live vaccine is uh, uses the yellow fever vaccine virus shell mm-hmm. so the vaccine strain of yellow fever and it's got put into it two proteins from the uh, Japanese encephalitis vaccine, mm-hmm. three membrane protein and an envelope protein. And that causes quite long lasting immunity. Now it takes about 14 days after the last dose generally for people to develop antibody, but with an incubation period of between about five and 15 days for Japanese encephalitis, you'd have to be very unlucky uh if you got vaccinated and then you got bitten by a mosquito you'd have to get bitten like within a day or two of getting the vaccine for it to have no effect but it's unlikely that if you've been vaccinated and you get infected it's unlikely that you probably get severe illness uh, even even if it's more even if it's like five days after you get the vaccine so the two vaccines they're both highly immunogenic there's a the typical schedule for the Japanese encephalitis J-Spec is actually two doses, 28 days apart, but you can have an abbreviated schedule, seven days apart, even 14 days apart. And uh, we don't really know what the story is with boosters, but it's generally recommended that boosters be given maybe a year later. But the reality is, is you can probably get them any time from a year onwards after you've had the vaccine. So if I've been overseas and I've had Japanese encephalitis vaccine and I'm worried about this current outbreak, I could just get a single dose of either of those vaccines as a booster. Mm. All right. Um, if I've never been vaccinated against Japanese encephalitis and I want to get rapid protection, uh, abbreviated schedule, zero and seven days for j uh, or a single dose of Imojev, uh, they would be pretty similar. You develop anti but you'd be protected probably within uh, 14 days after the second dose of the vaccine. So there's only about a week difference in time to protection uh, between the two. The big thing is the Imogev, since it's on a yellow fever vaccine shell, vaccine virus shell, uh, it can't be given to immunosuppressed people. So all the contraindications of yellow fever vaccine applied to the Imogev vaccine. Okay, what's likely to come out of this is that we're likely to actually move towards a generic flavivirus vaccine, because there is data that shows that the yellow fever vaccine, shell-type vaccine, or the strain that's uh, a live attenuated strain of Japanese encephalitis vaccine, one of which is in China, but is not currently on the market in most other countries, that seems to provide across the board protection against Zika, dengue, as well as Japanese encephalitis. And so it may well be that the the outcome of this is that in australia we could look at probably developing a generic flavivirus uh, vaccine Mm -hmm. and that would also cause give yield protection against uh, murray valley encephalitis Mm -hmm. so i think for the person that's actually just traveling to the country or they've got a a hobby farm or something in the country do Mm -hmm. they need to get vaccinated well i don't think there's any reason why you wouldn't you just need to make sure both vaccines are actually quite safe and And obviously, if you've got immunosuppression, you do not want to be giving the ImmoGEV, which is a live uh, vaccine. But I think the biggest problem at the moment is the vaccines in short supply, and the government will be rationing them specifically for an occupational health and safety for people working in piggeries. And then there'll be activity also trying to, uh, with mosquito control, and some of those techniques we've used for sterile male releases to control mosquitoes with dengue a similar thing may be tried with the culicine mosquitoes but that may be a little bit more difficult um, of course mosquitoes all do uh, vary in uh, how easy they are to do those things with and and it's basically going to be something that's that's here to stay really and what we need to do is we need to one, keep it in perspective. Uh, know that anyone who presents with encephalitis, it's on the differential diagnosis. Uh, and that when people come in and want to be vaccinated, we need to go through the you know, the risk factors uh, for why they need the vaccine, uh, the benefit of having the vaccine, the availability and the cost. I would predict that the cost of the vaccine is probably going to be driven down considerably. And also you'll find that from an occupational health and safety point of view, like the Q fever vaccine, the employer will be obliged to provide the vaccine. And many general practitioners in rural areas will probably be the focal point for uh, those people to come to uh, and get vaccinated. Bernie, fabulous information couple of points you make, this
0: is, of course, nobody wants to hear is that because of the feral pigs, it's likely to become endemic. It's like, seriously, we don't need another virus. But it's also heartening to hear that the vaccines are, in fact, effective, and that Asian countries have been using it in their childhood immunization. So we actually have a reasonable time looking at adverse
1: reactions. And you tell me, look, it's reasonably safe. Pregnancy David is the thing that always comes up. So the, the the clue to when you the Japanese encephalitis in the in the piggeries was in if the pigs get infected early in their in their pregnancy, they can have an fetal abnormalities. And as we know with Zika, um, without scaring uh, Uh, women who are pregnant or could become pregnant. We know that these flaviviruses can actually cause fetal abnormalities, but uh, at the moment, it's not a blank page. We do know that that does occur, but as far as guidelines for women that are pregnant at the moment, we need a little bit more information and we certainly don't need to scare people, but it's like any other infection early pregnancy infection is the most likely one to create any problems. So women who are pregnant, especially early pregnancy, is very important uh, for them to protect themselves against uh, mosquitoes. And that's apart from the the repellents, it's actually reducing their likelihood of exposure. Uh, The mosquitoes that transmit Japanese encephalitis primarily bite uh, between dusk and dawn. And certainly around that time of sunset, that's a high risk high risk period. but you know you can always get bitten during during the day but the primary time of biting is the usual time people get mozzie bites, which is you know around uh, around sunset but that period between dusk dusk and dawn. So I think at the moment what what we need to be promoting very heavily is insect bite prevention and mosquito avoidance. and the authorities, will be doing a good job with mosquito control. And there might be some of those other high-tech things like we've done with dengue mosquitoes and sterile male releases and things like that that might work. It just comes
0: to mind, uh, Bernie, just listening to all yeah. this, why do not we just do something with the pigs
1: themselves? I mean, after all, they are the amplifying. That's a very good question, David. <laughs> so what happens is if you take the pigs out of the equation, you still have the birds as the amplifying host. So you've got birds birds mosquitoes so you've got birds mosquitoes transmission to humans and horses and donkeys but if you've got birds mosquitoes and pigs and that usually is a bit of a double whammy uh, there are vaccines that are being used uh, for vaccinating uh, pigs, but it's a difficult strategy because whenever you've got a wild, and this might be something that might be trialled in wild pigs, for example, if there is a, a vaccine uh, that's easily delivered, and it probably won't be an injectable one, if there's a vaccine that can be delivered to wild pigs in some shape or form, then that actually may be something that could be looked into. And Australia is the sort of country where you probably could look into that. But uh, you'll see photos on the internet of pigs being vaccinated during Japanese encephalitis outbreaks, never as drastic as uh, there was a big, so there's a virus related to Hendra virus, which is not mosquito transmitted, which is Nipah virus. And you may recall that in Malaysia, uh, they actually slaughtered a lot of the pigs because they, uh, they thought they wouldn't be able to get it under control. I don't, that's not going to happen uh, here. And as they keep telling you, you can't get it from eating pork, obviously. But I think uh, more focus on control measures in the pigs um, may lead to a better strategy, including vaccination. But at the moment, the main, strateg- main strategy Uh, has to focus on uh, mosquito control because if you don't get bitten by the mosquito, uh, you can't get the infection.
0: Bernie, I want you to come back to the rule of thirds. Those who actually have neurological symptoms, I mean, it's not a great outcome. Are particularly groups of people more
1: at risk of these neurological outcomes? Um, I think you'll find that the reason why there's a childhood vaccination program is in Southeast Asia, it tends to be the elderly and the very young people. Mm So children under the age of five and uh, very elderly people. But it can occur at any age, obviously. Two
0: things I'm going to take from this. One is sort of the excitement, if you like, for a generic flavivirus uh, vaccine. Because if we do get that, then yes. seriously, we will be able to travel with. Correct. Diabetes. But but I also think when you mentioned the word Culex, uh, I know that Anopheles um, and Culex, they're pretty good for malaria
1: as well. I mean, are we going to see other types of tropical diseases coming? Okay, down? yeah. So I think with rain and clim- global warming and climate climate change, so Anopheline mosquitoes transmit malaria. So the Culexine mosquitoes don't transmit malaria. They primarily don't transmit. Uh, viruses, but they also um, transmit uh, filariasis, for example, and and interestingly, Australia used to be endemic for filariasis. And so, is it possible that we could actually get filariasis back in Australia? Okay. Look, it's possible, but you need a you need a population uh, of humans that are infected, and we don't we don't have that. So. Uh, but yeah the mosquitoes that transmit malaria they are, are anopheline mosquitoes so they're different and right. and and they primarily uh, only occur in northern australia but but anopheline mosquitoes have been found down you know as far south as Mackay, for example and with global warming mm-hmm. you most people would expect that anopheline mosquito distribution would uh, would go more southward for example so Tasmanians coming onto the mainland, I can't see the day where they'd have to take malaria prophylaxis, but um, mosquito mosquito bite uh, prevention uh, is a good idea wherever you go. I mean, it's no surprise we've had a big surge in um, uh, Ross River virus cases and probably Bama virus, although people aren't as tuned into that as much because we used to have a little aphorism that you can't get Ross River virus infection in metropolitan Sydney and probably metropolitan uh, Melbourne, although I don't know that as well. But we, we've got Ross River virus in some of the wetlands on the northern beaches of Sydney now. So it's not possible to say that urbanization alone protects you from getting these things. But, but in general, the, uh, the pigs are the amplifying hosts here. And, you know, like if we've got, I think that last count, there are 18 cases uh, that have been notified in humans. If there's 18 cases and only one in about 100 people is symptomatic, then you know that there's probably quite a lot of people out there that have already got infected and, and didn't get sick. So I think you know, it's it's probably come in some time ago, and the rain and the mosquito the surge in the mosquito population is what has actually uh, led to this happening. The
0: one question I need to ask Sue so can say no. Hopefully, Bernie is the
1: risk in the future of human to human transmission. Unlikely. Basically, it needs most of these infections require a period of development time outside the uh, host in the, in, the, in the mosquito. But if the virus is shed in the urine, and some of these, you know, you just got to look at uh, Zika virus and virus in semen. So sexual transmission of these would be one of the wild cards that people would have to be looking into, because the other flavy, the flavivirus, you know, like Zika virus, um, and all the all the restrictions on sexual contact in uh, males after they've been infected, uh, they you know, um, how, how important that is in the epidemiology are not uh, uncertain. But yeah, sure, we can find them in the urine. If like flavivirus, we'd probably be able to find them in uh, semen and possibly even cervical secretion. So if you take a line through Zika virus, then that's that's something that we would also have to look at. We have the advantage in a place like Australia is we have a lot of resources to places like the CSIRO, DPI, and our public health uh, laboratories in particular, where we may be able to look at some of these things. But but at the end of the day, the the main mode of getting it almost certainly, you know, overwhelmingly is by mosquito bite. Uh, it looks like very soon,
0: uh, Bernie, you're going to have to start up a branch of the School of Tropical Medicine in Sydney, don't you?
1: Well, well, funnily enough, the School of Tropical Medicine started out in Townsville. And I, oh, look, I get the dates wrong, but I think it was at the turn of the 1900s, it was actually moved down to Sydney. And it wasn't until 1988 that it was moved back to Queensland, um, and uh, and that was initially Brisbane, and then uh, Townsville and Brisbane uh, both uh, both locations. I, I mean, I think it's it's a very uh, very interesting. When I was um, starting out in infectious disease in the 80s, there was a leading editorial in the I think it was the Journal of Infection, and it said the career prospects for infectious diseases specialists were bleak because all the infections had been fixed. And uh, there was a guy called, you probably i have I've said this many times before, there was a guy who was the director of the National Institute of Health. In 1969, he said, the war against infectious diseases has been won. Wow. And in, and in 90, because of vaccines and antibiotics. And in 1996, a guy from the Mayo Clinic, David Persing said, yeah, but he never said who won. <laughs> but I, I think I think you know COVID COVID's got infectious diseases as far as uh, public health. You know the government's realizing that you know when, we're not an island. We're an island, but we're not an island. They need to they need to be very proactive about a lot of this stuff. So I really do think that the emoji of, uh that live virus live JE vaccine. I reckon people are going to start to find out that it's probably going to be, I think we probably will have a generic uh, flavivirus vaccine. Funnily enough, the protection, whilst whilst you do get antibodies as a correlative protection, the T cell protection with viruses in particular is, is pretty prominent. So T and B cell, T and B cell. So the cellular side of the immune response is likely to be highly Highly protective. So, even if you don't have the antibodies from the vaccine, <laughs> you may in fact have T cell, cell mediated immunity that provides protection. The other interesting thing is is there are assays that can tell, antibody assays that can tell the difference between antibodies produced in response to vaccination with Imagev. Mm-hmm. Because it's just got two uh, epitopes, the um, envelope protein and the pre-membrane protein as opposed to someone who's got antibodies against other components of the virus so it's going to be it's going to be interesting to seeing uh, how all that stuff pans out but it's another thing the government's just going to have to put money into you know.
0: Bernie just quickly now that you have mentioned uh, antibody assays being able to tell the difference between if you like Imgref and other vaccines or even a wild infection yeah Uh, will it come a time when we actually do assays in at-risk regions before shots or just give the shots anyway, because there are so many
1: patients who already have asymptomatic infection. Yeah, I think I I think I think what they'll do is they'll probably just vaccinate because that strategy was used for um, hepatitis A initially. Now, they, they often, they just vaccinate them. But I think the assay only tells the difference between whether you've had IMAGEV and whether you've had natural infection or or spec really uh, because jspec is a is a killed virus so you'd have lots of epitopes whereas the um the yellow fever vaccine is a uh, shell vaccine virus shell has just got those two epitopes Look, uh, Bernie, thank you for taking us up to speed. Uh, but, but you've
0: answered a lot of questions. I'm sure uh, new questions will arise as we see more cases, yeah. uh, and I'll, I'll reach out to you. But, but this has been fantastic. Really yeah. great. An interesting.
1: Still. It's a it's a good example of how we think we're smart, but mosquitoes have outwitted us yet again. Yep, we keep losing two cockroaches and mosquitoes. <laughs> All right. Good to talk to you, <laughs> Bernie. You okay. have a good day, buddy.
0: You too. See Great. you. Bye. Bye. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience it's free you get cpd points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice wherever you choose to be register now at healthed.com.au. you can claim racgp cpd points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option log into your account on the racgp website go to the CPD section and click on Self Claim.